the title of my message today is, You Remind Me of Your Father. You Remind Me of Your Father. Some of you are laughing. Some of you are groaning. It's interesting. It's interesting as we will unpack this together. Uh, Around Christmas time, it's kind of interesting because uh, we end up getting together with all sorts of people that we don't normally spend a lot of time with, right? Uh, Maybe we don't spend time with them you know, just by coincidence, maybe on purpose, right? <laughs> like with different reasons. But Christmas time, people come together, right? Uh, people come into town, friends, family, people come from all over. We go out of our way to sort of get together and, and spend some time together and catch up. And, you know, uh, it could be old friends. It could be, you know, distant family members. Uh, but we find ourselves sort of at a party or a get-together um, and something with sugary desserts and hot cocoa, probably. And we bump into somebody that we haven't seen in forever. And, you know, the older you get and the more life you live and the more you travel, the more places you go, the bigger your family becomes, the more this happens to you. And the more you find yourself bumping into people at these things and just, they look a little bit familiar, but you have no idea who this person is. Has this happened to you recently, right? Maybe you're just like, I don't know who this is, right? I came with them today. I don't even know who they are. I'm, I'm struggling right now. But you have these moments where you, 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 there's this glimmer of recognition in their eye and you're just like, should I know you? I feel like I should. Where are you from? How do I know you? What is the connection here? And uh, this has happened to me my whole life. And, you know, even as a kid, when I had lived a very short amount of time, I would go places and there would be all these people that my parents knew who knew me, but I didn't really know them. And of course, as you grow super fast as a kid, I mean, you're completely morphing and changing shape, you know, like so quickly that people have trouble keeping up. And there were so many different times in my childhood where I'd have somebody come up to me and they would sort of like stare at me for a while because that's not creepy when you're a kid. Just have an old person that you don't know come up and put their hands on the side of your face and just look at you, you know, and start shaking your pudgy cheeks, you know what I mean? And they would stare at me, and then all of a sudden, it was like, it would click in their minds, and they would be like, oh, you're Bradley's boy. That's my dad's name. You're Bradley's boy. You remind me so much of your father. This is my dad, by the way, uh, Bradley. And um, yeah, he, uh, he's always had a thing for fashion, um, <laughs> as you can tell. Not always like great fashion, but... Um, we like to believe that like he was just really into that like dad style, but unironically before it was cool. You know what I mean? That was sort of his, his deal. And I would bump into people and they would just, they would light up. They would get so excited. They would be like, oh, you're Bradley's boy. Oh, you, oh, you look just like, you remind me so much of your father. And I never knew if that was a good thing or if it was like a bad thing, right? I didn't know if it was a good thing for them. I didn't know if it was supposed to be a good thing for me. I never knew how to feel about that thing. Like it just, it just seemed like a little bit like awkward and uncomfortable. And maybe this has happened to you before as well, where someone has, has bumped into you and after a little bit of time, a sort of like, you know, not really knowing where they know you from, suddenly they figure it out. And they're just like, oh, I know how I know you. I know exactly where you're from. And they get all excited because they've pinned down exactly who they think you are. You're like, you know, so-and-so's kid. And maybe that makes you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you don't like that. Maybe there's something about that label that, that you don't like or that you find limiting. Because in your mind, when it's happening, you're like, yes, 
I am that, but I'm also more than just that. There's more to me than just that thing. And in fact, I don't know that that's how I really want to be defined. And I think there's all sorts of reasons why we may feel uncomfortable with this label. And, you know, as I've grown up, I've noticed that almost everybody goes through a season in their life where they sort of want to distance themselves from the people that they came from, from the people that raised them. Specifically, you know, we want to distance ourselves from our parents and maybe even specifically from our father. Why is this? It could be a lot of different reasons, right? Maybe you're just in a place where you just want to be your own person, you know? You want to be known for who you are and the things that you do, not just for who they are and the things that they did. Maybe for you, it was that your, your dad was really successful and admired and beloved, and there's this sinking feeling inside that you were never going to be able to live up to who that person was, and you hate being reminded of it every single time you bump into somebody. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's that your dad wasn't a good guy. Maybe the reality was, you know, he's not somebody that you want to be like. And you hate the idea of someone sort of tying your reputation to theirs. Maybe you and your dad aren't really that close. Maybe that, you know, you haven't been for a long time. Maybe you don't talk. And maybe you really don't want to talk about why that is. Maybe there's a whole backstory that you really don't want to get into. Maybe for you, Dad is a weird concept because your dad took off at some point during your life and you don't really have a close connection with him. And so it just, it seems ridiculous for you to be compared to someone that you barely ever knew. Or maybe it was that your dad wasn't a bad guy. He was fine. He just, it just felt like he didn't really get you. And you didn't really get him. Like, it wasn't that there was anything wrong with the two of you. It was just that like, there was nothing that really clicked. It was that, you know, he wasn't a jerk, but he just wasn't who you wanted him to be. And maybe it felt like at times that you weren't who he wanted you to be. What I wonder is, is there something inside of you that sort of recoils when someone recognizes your father in you? And it's not because maybe it's not true, but because it's not the whole truth. Because the reality of it is, even accurate associations are still inadequate, right? They, they may partially describe us, but they don't fully define us. You're like, yeah, te- okay, yes, I am, the, I am related to those people, okay? According to a recent DNA test, I can no longer deny it. It's true, right? But like, I just, I don't want that to be all you see when you look at me. And yet what's interesting is, despite the fact that a lot of us don't want to be defined by maybe who our parents were, I think a lot of us spend a lot of our lives trying to be as much like our fathers as we can, or we go in the opposite direction. We try and be as unlike our fathers as we can. We have this sense that we want to make them proud, or we want to make them pay, or we want to prove them wrong, or maybe like a little bit of all three. It's complicated. But here's what I do recognize as being true. As I've gotten to know people, as I've done so much pastoring and counseling, I will tell you that one thing that is true about all people when it comes to father, their father, is that like the idea of father is not neutral. It's loaded. 
There's a depth charge. When you say this word, it means something, and not just something general or generic. It means something very specific and weighty to you because of who your father was, because of how that relationship went. And it's because of this that the, the third nickname that is given to Jesus in the book of Isaiah, I think is sort of interesting and tough to wrestle with. I want to just read this one more time to you guys as we've been looking at it all throughout the series. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's a prophecy years before Jesus was born. It says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want to talk about this, this phrase, Everlasting Father. I mean, first off, for a lot of us, it just feels confusing because we're not used to thinking of Jesus this way. We're like, no, it's God the Father, okay? Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit, whatever that means, okay? That's, those are the categories. But it's odd to think of Jesus the Father, Jesus, the everlasting father. Jesus, who had, was never married, had no, never had any kids. Jesus, the everlasting father. Like, what are we talking about here? This is part of the profound mystery of God, that there is, there's both like a separation and a cohesion to all these different triune forms of God. But, you know, we're not the only ones to have a hard time wrapping our heads around this concept. It's confusing, right? There's this, uh, there's this like interaction that breaks out between Jesus and one of the disciples where they're so confused about this idea of Jesus as father. And they're talking back and forth with him about it in John chapter 14, verse eight. It says, one of the disciples said, Lord, show us the father. And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time and you still don't know who I am? There's a little bit of sarcasm in there in case you're not picking that up. Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words I speak are not my own, but the Father who lives in me. It's Jesus saying that I and the Father, we are one in the same. When you look at me, you're seeing God the Father. Now, for a lot of us, thinking of God as a Father just in general, without even involving Jesus, is confusing enough. It's complicated because this is how metaphors work, right? We, we take sort of what we know about one thing and we apply it to our understanding of another thing, right? We're sort of like, I don't really get this. I don't really understand this concept. I don't really understand how this works. And we're like, well, it's like this, right? And we copy and paste these attributes or these ideas onto this other thing. And now suddenly we have a new understanding of what it is we're talking about. And this metaphor of God as father works the same way, but it also means that depending on your individual experiences, you may, like a lot of things may come up for you when you think about God as a father that have nothing to do with who God really is and way more to do with who your father was. The English um, biblical scholar, J.B. Phillips said it this way. He said that uh, the early conception of God is almost invariably founded upon a child's idea of his father. In other words, that we do this naturally, that as we're growing up, the way we think of God is maybe some like super-sized, super-powered 
version of whatever our dad was. We can't help but copy and paste our experiences and our impressions of our father onto God as a father. And I'm amazed at how true this tends to be as I listen to people tell their stories and I listen to people talk about how they see and experience God. I have this friend who grew up, I remember her telling me one time that she, when we were in our 20s, like she didn't ever remember her dad telling her that he loved her. It just was nothing that he ever said. He he wasn't emotional and he never said those sorts of things. And so it sort of left her with this image of God who was uninterested and unimpressed and unarticulate, unaffirming of her. There's this other guy I know who told me that um, every time he talked to his dad, like he always remembered his dad being annoyed just every time he mentioned anything. And he never wanted to ask his dad to help him with things because of that. He told me a story one time about asking his dad to help him with this science project. Like he got sent home with this packet of papers where they had to do like an experiment and write up this whole thing. And it was like 10 pages. And the teacher like sort of halfway explained it or maybe he just was halfway listening. And so he went home and he gave the packet to his dad. And he was just like, dad, can you help me? I don't get it. And he remembers his dad just pushing the packet back to him and being like, it's your homework assignment, not mine. Don't be lazy. And he remember like feeling so broken up like and overwhelmed with how much he didn't know how to do and this being his only lifeline, his dad being so annoyed with him for even asking. He said like, that was the last time I ever asked my dad for anything. Because it just, it just seemed like I was always a bother. And he sort of grew up with this idea that maybe God is the same way, that maybe God is someone who doesn't want to be bothered who's frustrated when we ask for help. Another one of my friends said that uh, as she was growing up, um, you know, we all have these moments where we suspect that maybe like our parents have a favorite and it's not us, you know? And she was like, no one had to guess. Like everybody in my family was, we know exactly who it is, okay? And it was like her sister got everything, was just praised, was held up. Like she was the one that her dad liked and loved and gave attention to. And it sort of left her with this impression of God that that God is, is one who picks favorites and sort of pushes everyone else to the side. Like that God has specific people or maybe specific kinds of people or groups of people that he likes and is interested in. And then everybody else in humanity he could care less about. This was her impression of who God is. I know several people who, you know, their, their parents got divorced when they were, when they were young and, and their dad left and went and started a new life and in a lot of cases, a new family. And they sort of watched that family at a distance get a lot of attention from their dad and they got next to none. I remember one of my friends talking to me about her experience of that and what it did to her view of God and her saying like, you know, it it made me wonder if like maybe that's what God sort of did to the world that we live in. Like maybe he just got to a point where he was just like, you know, I'm done, I'm disinterested, I'm I'm going away. (laughs) You guys figure it out. And maybe God abandoned us in lieu of something else. When I was a youth pastor, there was this kid that 
was always hanging out like at the church, like more than the people that worked there, okay? Uh, it was just always sort of hanging around and um, a lot of times we'd hang out with them, take them to lunch. He was just always bumming around and I remember one time hearing from the, the guy who was like the maintenance director came to my office and was like, hey, I want to tell you what happened yesterday. He was like, I was about to lock up and I saw this kid and I was sitting around and I was just like, hey, you, I got to lock up. You got to go home. And he, he wasn't listening. And so I'm just like, hey, I yelled at him. And I was like, you got you to gotta jet because I got to lock up. And, and he's, the kid was like kind of jaded and like hard on the outside. And he's like, when I, when I yelled at him like that, he just broke down and started crying. And it shocked me because it was so uncharacteristic for him. And I went and sat on the curb with him. And he was like, please don't make me go home. I was like, Why? And the kid said that, you know, my dad drinks a lot, and when he drinks, he turns into a different person. He starts shoving, and then I get in the way, and then he starts hitting me, and he'll yell, and I just don't, I don't want to go home to that. If I could just, if I could just stay here, and maybe he'll have passed out before I get there, and then I won't have to face that again tonight. A couple years later, when his mom died, uh, he, he told me that it felt like his death sentence because now it was just the two of them. It sort of left him with this image of God of maybe this being that inflicts pain on his kids to sort of make himself feel better just like his dad did to him. Now, I don't know how your story reads. Maybe it's much better than this. Maybe it's a whole lot worse. But here's what I do know. So much of what you think and feel about your heavenly father is filtered through your experience of your earthly father. It's unavoidable. It's how we process the metaphor. And so the, the big question I think remains of like, if God is a father, then what kind of father is he? Because there's all different types. And for some of us, really understanding God as a father, we have to unhitch that from the concept of our father, or at least aspects of our father. So to begin with, I want to just read you something that is like one of the most fundamental foundational things that the New Testament authors wanted us to know about who God is. And this is echoed again and again and again. I'll just show you a place where it is spoken the most simply. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 we're told this, that God is love. That God is love. In other words, like God is love in its purest form. Without manipulation, without the need to control, without any sort of lust or underhanded, like calculated thing, without any codependency, it's love. God is love in its purest form, which means that if you could actually figure out what love looks like, you could get a glimpse of what God is like. And we can do this. Fortunately, we're told a lot about what love looks like in Scripture. And I'll, I'll just read you one passage that you've probably heard before if you've ever been to a wedding, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has this sort of description of love. Starting in verse 4, it says this, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It always, it's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. 
Now, we may have heard this before, and it sounds familiar, but like there are times when I'm really trying to remind myself of who God is, that I will sit down and I will just replace this word love with the word God. We're told that God is love, which means this isn't just a description of what love is like. It's a description of what God is like. Like, think about how it just shifts the way that your mind works to read it in this other way. That God is patient. That God is kind. God is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. He doesn't demand his own way. He's not irritable and keeps no record of being wronged. He doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. God never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. For some of us, this is mind-bending because to think of God as love and God as father means that we have to stretch our minds uh, to wrap around an experience that we have not ever had before. The idea of a father being patient and kind, and loving. The idea of a father not being irritated with you. I think it's helpful to just sort of read this and meditate on it over and over again. At least for me, it helps me sort of sort through how my heavenly father is both similar to and completely separate from my earthly father but it still doesn't really solve sort of the conundrum of this this nickname. And I think one thing that does help is to know that in in the ancient culture, that this term father was, was sort of first became a metaphor for God. It wasn't a reference to someone's biological father, which is maybe how we think of it, but it was a reference to what was called a householder, which was essentially the one in charge of and responsible for a particular place and its people. Now, we don't really think in these terms today, but like, like not everybody owned property, right? Not everybody was in charge of a household. This is generally like one person who sort of governed that property, who took care of its people, who carried the name of that location. And it's not really how our time works. And so there's a little bit of a lag in our understanding of this concept. But like, let's think that you lived back in this time period and um, you know, your biological father might have been like a peasant who worked for a landowner and took care of the property and whatever. And so like your, your father wouldn't have actually been the, the person who helped make you, right? Who's biologically connected to you, but it's the person whose house you're all a part of. And so it would lead to people saying things like, oh, I am from the family of blank. Or, you know, I, I, I am from the house of blank. This would be the father or the householder. In fact, this, this idea stretched so far in, in terms of meaning certain specific things that during the time that Jesus was born, the Roman Empire ruled the world and the people who lived in Rome were called the sons of Rome because in their mind, Rome was their father. Now again, this stretches and broadens and expands maybe our understanding of this concept. Like when, when in this time period to call someone or something your father meant to acknowledge them in a very specific way as your originator, your protector, your provider, and your mentor. 
Now, some of this we can sort of see in the idea of the way we think about fatherhood today, but there's also things about it that are a little bit different. And I think to really understand this ancient metaphor as God, as the everlasting father, we have to unpack these ideas from the culture in which they grew from. So what does it mean for Jesus to be your originator? It means that like he's a picture of where you came from and what it is that ties us together. This idea that God and, um, and Jesus are one means that like God was, uh, and Jesus were present at creation, that everything is created through him, that Jesus is mysteriously a part of the source of all things, that we're made in his image. And the powerful thought about this is that there is not an orphan among us, that humanity is God's family, that we are all inescapably connected in and through him. And this has profound implications. It means that the people that we share life with, even people most unlike us, are our brothers and sisters. And that when we see them this way, it ought to change the way that we interact with them, that we treat them, the responsibility we feel towards them, that we are all brothers and sisters, and Jesus is the Father who links us. Jesus is the family we belong to. What does it mean for God to be our protector? For some of us, this is like our favorite concept. Um, we like the idea of, of meaning that God won't let anything bad happen to us. And sadly, it's not what it means, um, which is a bummer for all of the hedge of protection prayers my mom prayed about me when driving my vehicle. What this actually means is that God will safeguard your soul. It's not that you won't experience any pain or heartache in your life, but it means that when you inevitably do, it won't destroy you. Now think about the power of that. That when things horrible happen in your life, that that is not the end of your life. That in fact, like you're gonna make it through. And this isn't really what we want. Like oftentimes when I pray, the things I want God to protect me from, I, I want Jesus to protect us uh, and my family from everything on the outside, but what he wants to do is fortify us on the inside. And sometimes what frustrates us is the reality that existed in Jesus' day and it still exists today, that, that Jesus' promise isn't to protect you from physical pain or political policies that you don't like, but from the bitterness, selfishness, and defensiveness that those things can create inside you. And that's a bigger, more important, more significant thing for God to do, but it's not always what we want him to do. We're like, God, fix all the stuff out here. And he's like, let's talk about what it's doing to you in there. That's where I want to protect you from your heart hardening, from anger taking over, from defensiveness and frustration and finger pointing, ruling your life. And then it says that, you know, he's our provider what does that mean? It means that ultimately he is the one responsible to meet our needs. Scripture says over and over again that, you know, that, that God looks out for the widow and the orphan. And today, you know, we, we think about this idea of an orphan as a child without parents. But, you know, in Jesus' day, the idea of an orphan was a person without a householder. It was a person unattached to a provider 
in their life. In other words, it was someone who constantly was worried about where their next meal was going to come from and how they were going to pay their bills and if they were going to have what they needed just to survive and make it in life. But we're told that Jesus is a father who gives special care and attention to those who are weak and vulnerable. And in fact, when we watch the life of Jesus, we watch him consistently caring for and providing for people who were pushed to the edges and who were most vulnerable. Meaning that when you are in that place, that God is looking out for you, that God will supply all of your needs. And then there's this idea of Jesus as our mentor, which essentially means that that he is the best model of spiritual and emotional maturity. That if you want to know what those things look like, look at the life of Jesus. And in this culture, like kids would grow up sort of watching the householder and learning how to be a respectable, responsible householder by modeling their parents. You know, ancient cultures were often uh, apprenticeship sort of cultures in which the, the mantra was, watch me, watch what I do, and then do what I do. Model my life. And to look at, at, at Jesus as an everlasting father is to, to go through life sort of regularly asking yourself, what, you know, what would Jesus do in this situation? which is really the same thing as asking, what would love do in this situation? Because Jesus is God and God is love. And part of what I think is powerful about thinking of Jesus as our father, as our originator, protector, provider, and mentor, is I think a lot of the flaws in our relationships with our earthly fathers are rooted in one of these things. For some of us, the issues we have with our earthly father are issues of origin. Like, we feel like we have no sense of where we came from and who we fit with, where we really belong. Some of us, it's a, it's a protection issue. Like, we never had the sense that we were protected and insulated, that we were handed tools to be able to cope healthily with horrible things that would inevitably happen in life. We were just sort of left to fend for ourselves. Some of us, it was an issue of provision. Like we grew up with this overactive sense of of scarcity and insufficiency, always feeling like there was never gonna be enough and and the bottom was gonna drop out at any moment. And at any second, we weren't gonna have what we needed to survive. Some of us, it was an issue of mentorship. We, we, we felt like we had no one to turn to, no one to talk to, to help us make wise decisions and to live responsibly and to be a part of and to serve into a community. We were just sort of left to figure it out on our own and we didn't always make the best choices. And some of us, when we, when we think about these ideas, we're like, man, I didn't get any of that stuff from my earthly father. Some of us, we, we sort of, we have this moment where we think like, man, if my dad was different, if my dad was better, if my dad was more like this, I would be different. I would get all the things that I wanted and needed out of life. I would be a totally different person. And there's some truth to that. But I will tell you this at the same exact time, even if, even if your dad was like the most perfect dad you could ever possibly imagine, even those with the best earthly fathers, 
those guys, they still can't give us everything that we need on as deep a level as we need it by themselves. It's impossible. But Jesus can. And that's the idea of God as an everlasting father. It's this idea that it's even better than God being everything you need. It's him being everything you need forever. That unlike earthly fathers, whether we're talking about caregivers or leaders or mentors in our life, Jesus is the everlasting father. Like his role in our lives is unending. It echoes into eternity. When we place our faith and our trust in him, when we take on his family name, he can be counted on to treat us with patience and kindness and generosity and consideration and encouragement and honesty and forgiveness forever. One of the New Testament writers says it this way in the book of Hebrews chapter 13. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's this idea that the character of Jesus is everlasting. And what happened is, as the early followers of Jesus embraced him as their originator, their protector, their provider, and their mentor, their relationship with him, over and above, like, you know, their, their birth family or their position in society or their career mastery, their connection to Jesus and their relationship with him and association with him as their father, that became the thing that defined them more than anything else. And people came to identify them as a reflection of him. And in doing so, Jesus fathers a brand new way of being human that echoes into eternity. And this is the question I want to pose to you today. Like as we all have different sorts of relationships with our family of origin, with our parents, with the father figures in our life, as we have certain people that we want to distance ourselves from or create space from, as we maybe have a short list of people we don't want to be like, what are you aiming at? And this is what I wonder, like, what if the father you most remind others of is Jesus? What if when people looked at you, with, when they saw you, when they experienced you, when they spent time with you, that what they got from that interaction was that you remind them of something. You remind them of your father, Jesus. That the way you treat people is like Jesus. That the way that you, you handle going about getting what you need in life is just like Jesus, that the way you talk about and to people is just like Jesus, that it is unmistakable that your life looks like Jesus. What an incredible thought to think that we could so lean in to the relationship with our everlasting Father that that is what we look like more than anything else. I wonder if that's a life you could be proud of. I wonder if that is a name worth carrying around. I wonder if that's an association you might allow not just to describe a part of you, but to define the whole of you. Because when you do, 
it changes everything. Today, my challenge to you is to, to think about and build your relationship with Jesus, not just as a wonderful counselor, not just as a mighty God, but as your everlasting Father. Would you bow your heads across this room? I wanna just pray this over you today. God, thank you so much for your love and grace and mercy in our lives. We pray in this moment that you would expand our view, experience, and understanding of you. God, help, to, help us to, to sort of shed the unhelpful pieces of the idea of you as father because of some of the dysfunction in our relationship with our earthly father. God, may we be able to separate those ideas out so that we can experience you fully. God, may we be able to trust you and rely on you and lean into you. And God, may you lead us forward. May day by day we reflect you more. And as we do, may we find ourselves experiencing life that is truly life. In Jesus' name, amen.